The following episode of the 9pm edict contains politics, strong language, dodgy opinions, and adult themes. The Reserve Bank has decided to raise the official interest rate to 0.35. Certainly it's the first time since the 2007 election campaign. Of course, that didn't go all that well for John Howard. He lost that election. Hello, I'm Stilgerian. It's Thursday, the 5th of May, 2022. Welcome to the 9pm election unhinging, week the 4th. What does it mean for voters? Well, it means for those voters who have bought a house since 2010 it is the first interest rate rise they've ever encountered they've only ever known rates to be falling so it will increase their monthly repayments on average between 40 and 80 dollars a month straight away and if the cycle that the market is predicting continues up to uh, the official cash rate of 2.5 percent it means their repayments will increase by 780 to 1300 dollars a month over the next two years that's a lot of money It certainly is, and Scott Morrison wanted to put the economy right at the centre of the election campaign. Well, careful what you wish for. He's now reaping what he's sowed. And, of course, uh, even though he's trying to tell us that that the interest rate rise isn't a political thing, a clip has surfaced uh, from 2008 when Morrison said in Parliament that when interest rates go up, the government should cop the blame. Claims about what the government of the time was also saying about interest rates. And you could argue that they were somewhat successful in prosecuting an argument that if interest rates were to rise, then the government should be accountable for those things. And as a result, the government should not be elected. Well, if it's good for them, it's good for us, Mr Acting Deputy Speaker. Well, we're 16 days out from the election, dear listener. Postal voting is already open and pre-poll voting opens this coming Monday, the 9th of May. If you've just joined this little mini-series of The Edict, uh, welcome. Um, And I, I guess I should tell you that this is not trying to be any kind of definitive coverage of the election. It's not trying to be balanced. It's not trying to be anything, really. It's uh, it's really just my personal reflections on, on just some stuff I'm noticing as, as we go along. I'm trying not to make it about the, the campaigning itself and the horse race journalism, but of course I am, and later up I will have will deliberately talk about polling and the betting market and such things. So I am a complete hypocrite, but of course regular listeners uh, to this podcast know that already. Well, Labor had its formal uh, campaign launch on Sunday. You can look up the reports for yourself. Indeed, I link to all these things on the podcast website. Uh, If you haven't checked out the, the website before over at the 9pmedict.com and then uh, click on through to the edict stuff, you'll see that I list a lot of links, pretty much everything I refer to. Um, calling them show notes is is an understatement. It's almost all the citations. Anyway, if you, if you missed the Labor campaign launch, it's basically... Uh, more medicines on the pharmaceutical benefits scheme, uh, more manufacturing jobs somehow, gender pay equality or equity is the phrase used. So 
What does that mean? What's the difference between equity and equality? And how are you going to magically make that happen, given that we're already meant to pay people the same amount for the same job? (laughs) Um, Electric vehicles, again, somehow, and housing affordability. And I, I have quite a bit to say about housing affordability a little later in the pod. Um, I was interested um, to listen to uh, the 7am podcast the other day uh, when they looked at uh, Labor's policies. Mike Seckham, who's uh, the Sat Papers national correspondent, said a, a few interesting things about Labor's strategy. Apparently, when they lost the 2019 election, they, they commissioned a report to go, well, you know, why did we lose? And it turns out that it wasn't any particular policy that scared people off. Uh, it was more that they'd had 150 different policy announcements during the campaign and and people were a bit baffled by the complexity of it and, and therefore pulled back. Even though Labor had these measures like franking credits, tax write-offs for people who have investment properties, that sort of thing, it was not those people who were particularly scared off. When you disaggregate the results by electorate. Electorates that had large numbers of people receiving franking credits or making use of negative gearing on rental properties who would have been negatively affected by the changes, they actually swung to Labor. Turned out they were more concerned about other things like climate change. Also, electorates with a high proportion of tertiary educated voters, people earning more than $100,000 a year. Inner city seats in general swung towards Labor. But On the other hand, Labor lost votes, the review found, from those living outside of cities, also in coal mining communities, certain ethnic communities, particularly Chinese, practicing Christians, and Queenslanders, Queenslanders overall. The most concerning thing, I think, though, for the Labor Party was that it continued to lose support among a section of its traditional base of what were described in the report as lower income, economically insecure workers living in outer metropolitan, regional and rural Australia, who have lost trust in politicians and political institutions. Now, all that's really quite interesting, I think. But to me, it also speaks to something which I think is a real, real problem in the entire election campaign. It's because the strategists are micro-analysing all of these little bits and pieces to come up with either set-piece photo opportunities or or an individual piece of policy, the wording of something and whatever, without looking at the big picture. Um, and you get quite ridiculous things such as, oh, well, if we do have these people who are on this level of income and their tradies, therefore um, we'll, we'll have lots of Scott Morrison in high-vis or we'll have Albo visit this kind of place here because that will be an exact message crafted to this uh, percentage of the population in outer Sydney electorates or regional electorates or electorates which were once held by people whose middle names started with the letter J or something. Where is the big picture? And I'll come back to that because housing affordability, as I said, I will come back to that, is a massively important issue which requires a massive change and yet both major parties or party groups, be 
because remember the coalition is a coalition, uh, are just kind of nibbling at the edges. It's all very, very disappointing. Would you like to hear some Russell Crowe? Yeah, of course you would. Australia, we can do better. All it takes is a better government with better plans. Too many people are working multiple jobs just to keep their heads above water. We can do better than that. Too many of our kids aren't going to be able to buy a house. We can do better than that. Too many people in regional Australia can't get basic health care. We can do better than that. And our elderly are being mistreated every single day in a broken aged care system. We can do so much better than that. We have to. Your vote is powerful. Your vote can change things. Your vote can change Australia for the better. Authorised P. Erickson, Australian Labor Party, Canberra. Yeah, that's uh, Labor's big, fat, glossy campaign ad uh, narrated by Russell Crowe. The Murdoch Press has now pointed out that two of the shots in that TV commercial, TVZ, are generic stock footage from abroad, from another country. Apparently, two images of elderly people are, in fact, from the United States and Canada, respectively. And Russell Crowe's from New Zealand. You know, I mean, if we're, if we're being picky, oh dear, we'll hear more about, about that. Uh, that is not my reporting whinge of the week, however. My reporting whinge of the week last week, as you may remember, was about this, this phrase, a hung parliament, and how it would automatically lead to chaos. I'm going to continue that theme briefly today uh, because... Others have been talking about it as well. Uh, Bruce Guthrie in the New Daily uh, has said, we're taught to be suspicious of these political marriages, that is, minority governments and agreements and so on, uh, because, of course, that scepticism serves the interests of the two major parties who've dominated politics in this country in the modern era. Right for, for decades. Now, Guthrie says this is ridiculous, really, especially given one of the two major parties, uh, the LNP, is itself a coalition. Now, I'm going to object the LNP is only an actual party in Queensland. The coalition is not a party. It's a coalition of two parties in every state and territory except Queensland. So, again, we're falling for that. It's not the LNP. Uh, but he does point out that, you know, it's still a coalition. That is the point, based on party room ructions, defections and resignations. And it's a particularly unstable coalition at that, he says. Well, I don't know. I, I mean, the coalition has been there for decades. Uh, yes, there may be some arguments. Yes, uh, there may be some this, that and the other. But very rarely uh, do the uh, individual parties uh, the Liberal Party and the National Party vote differently on the floor of the House or the Senate. But his main point is there, 
Words like hung parliament or unstable parliament are all about shoring up the political dominance of the two major uh, factions, let's call them, the two major worldviews and so on. And he says we need to come up with a better term, as I uh, also agree. So he's put up some some options. He's got a poll. He says, do you want to call it a mixed parliament? Maybe a balanced parliament, though... It doesn't need necessarily need to be balanced, I suppose. An open parliament, but then the opposite of that is closed. A multi-party parliament is one. He's got a poll up on the webpage there, and currently a multi-party parliament is very much uh, in the lead. A multi-party parliament, or we could just call it a parliament because it's already a multi-party parliament. What you're thinking of is a multi-party government This week also, oh, also at the New Daily, um, I didn't mean to give them such prominence, Alan Kohler, you'll know him from his financial news, he says, oh, for the stability of a hung parliament. He reckons it's pretty amusing that a party that's had three prime ministers and three treasurers in nine years is warning about the chaos and instability of a hung parliament. Uh, Yes, 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 it's all about... Uh, the Liberal MPs in danger of losing their seats to independence. Uh, have a little bit more to say about that later. He um, notes that, uh, you know, for the last two decades, the factions in both parties uh, have been behaving like unruly independents for 15 to 20 years, sacking leaders willy nilly, willy nilly, and controlling government policy. Uh, Labor's factional instability, he says, seems to have been largely policy-free, just warring tribes fighting for the hell of it because that's what they do. Fair point. Uh, But in the coalition, it's been about policy, specifically one policy, climate change. Oh, yes. And then that's not even about the Liberals versus the Nationals, is it? It's about the Conservative faction uh, versus the moderate faction. Not that, not that not that there are factions in the Liberal Party, as they will tell you. Over at The Guardian, Nick Evershed, the Guardian uh, data journalist, has been uh, looking at the, the numbers of this. So the logic goes, or so uh, the government would tell you, that a minority government leads to chaos and instability, and that chaos makes it then difficult to pass legislation. Well, Nick Evershed's been rolling the numbers on on how much legislation each government has passed, each parliament has passed, I've said. And one of the figures, if you look at the number of bills that pass both houses, the House of Reps and the Senate, as a percentage of the total number of government bills introduced. So what proportion of government bills actually got passed? The highest is the Howard government number four, 93.7% of the bills they introduced passed. Then comes the the Gillard-Rudd government, the 43rd parliament. Then uh, Howard second, we're getting down to about 85.8% here. Then Morrison, then Howard three, then Turnbull, Morrison, then Abbott, Turnbull, uh, the 44th parliament, etc. And uh, then the Rudd government. So basically... um, yeah, uh, there were some minority governments, Gillard Rudd, number two, getting 91.8% of the bills it introduced passed. Now, some some caveats here. 
some little warnings. One, um, better written legislation or better negotiated legislation will be more likely to pass. But also, a bill can be anything from, you know, a page or two to hundreds of pages. Um, and and this analysis doesn't take that into account, um, uh, you know, or, or the controversy level of the bills. I mean, if you, if you pass a dozen little bills that are really just routine things that need to be done, what you're doing is um, just the everyday business of Parliament. And it should be remembered, as those figures show you, that the vast majority of bills under any government do pass um, because mostly they're just the machinery of government, and they're pretty obvious. Now, Nick has uh, added another analysis, which is the total number of acts passed during each prime ministerial term divided by the length of their time in office in days. So it's the figure is the number of bills passed per day in office. And Julia Gillard tops that list, having passed half a bill a day, 0.512 of a bill per day. Bob Hawke is next on 0.494, then Malcolm Fraser, 0.481, Gough Whitlam, 0.472, and Paul Keating, 0.469. Now, I reckon you could argue, too, that that four out of the five in the top five are, are, are Labor, you could argue that the progressive side of politics, yes, I know, no, is Labor really progressive these days, blah, 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 but the not conservative side of politics is more likely to want to change things and get legislation through, while surely the conservative side of politics wants things to stay more the same, so we'll do less. The other thing this doesn't mention, of course, either of these analyses, is that that's the number of days they were Prime Minister or the number of days that Parliament uh, was the Parliament, but not the number of days they actually had sessions of Parliament. And one thing that the uh, the Morrison government and the the uh, Abbott and uh, Turnbull governments and – is that it? Yep, before that. They haven't had many days of Parliament sitting. Now – Morrison, of course, was uh, Prime Minister during the pandemic, so there's there's another reason for fewer days of Parliament and fewer days of committees sitting and so on in that. But broadly speaking, on that measure, on the measure of the logic the Prime Minister is trying to, to convince us of, that minority government leads to chaos and chaos leads to um, um, difficulty getting legislation through, well, the two endpoints don't line up. Whether there is chaos and whether chaos doesn't... I mean, I don't know. The method doesn't matter. The, the, the broad thrust of his argument is not necessarily supported by the data. So surprised. Housekeeping time, very brief housekeeping today. One is uh, the next episode of this mini-series on the election will be next Thursday, the 12th of May. And then, of course, there'll be one after that on the 19th and then and then it's the election. I haven't yet decided whether I'll do one after the election, but two more to go. 16 days to the election. 
Uh, and I want to stress that this little miniseries is outside my normal budget. Uh, special guest series are, of course, uh, funded by my possible crowdfunding campaign and other other generic episodes just from the steady subscribers coming in. Uh, if you would like to contribute uh, to my upkeep during this extremely stressful election campaign, uh, you can do what Keith Duddy has done this week and throw in a few dollars into the tip jar. You can find that. So thank you, Keith, obviously. And you can find the tip jar at the 9pmedic.com slash tip, the 9pmedic.com slash tip. There's all sorts of payment options there. You can also subscribe to get yourself a trigger word or, or whatever, uh, a conversation topic and so on. Um, and, and that would be really lovely. Uh, there's two other reasons you might want to do that uh, currently. Um, one is that this is an extra series. I'm doing it just for you, dear listener, just for you. Uh, number two is I've just had the week off with the Rona, um, and uh, I'm better now. Thank you very much for asking. It wasn't too bad, uh, and thanks for your, 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 your wishes, your well wishes during that time. Uh, but that that is going to be cutting into my revenue a bit, so, you know, be nice to top the revenue up. And thirdly, coming up on Monday, when uh, when pre-polling starts, it's also my birthday. So I'm going to have a birthday a poll. I'm going to go in and vote on my birthday. That's Monday the 9th. Um, look, you know, we all like birthday presents, don't we? Anyway, they, they are all good reasons to go to the 9pmedic.com slash tip. Please consider... There's just simply not enough houses to go around. The focus has been on first home buyers and, and home ownership, and that's been at the cost of, of the rental market. The very idea that tenants should be competing against each other, Hunger Games style, for what little housing there is available, is totally unacceptable to me. That's part of a, a story from ABC TV's 7.30 on Monday night. It will not come as a surprise to any Australians that the rental market is a bit fucked these days. Uh, that's the whole story on rental affordability is worth listening to. I'm going to play some grabs from it here. Some facts that came to light for me was the massive increase in rental prices since the pandemic started a couple of years ago. Uh, back before that, the average rental price for a family home, I mean, across Australia, whatever, what just call this some index number, was $440. Now it's $580. There's been a, a 25% increase in the price of renting a house. Um, I don't know about you, but my income hasn't gone up 25% in the last two years, and it's all a bit grim. The housing market's out of control. One of the fundamental problems in Australia is that we've only ever considered housing as being a vehicle for personal wealth creation. We've never understood the, criti the criticality of it um, as a human right. Housing Trust CEO Michelle Adairs says that because rental prices are so expensive, People on high incomes are now having to apply for subsidies. 
In Sydney, a single person can earn as much as $86,000 a year and still be eligible for subsidised housing under the New South Wales government's own rules. Now, the mathematics of this, and I'm going to have a bit of maths here, so stay with me, please. Someone on 86 grand a year is earning above the median salary, the median household income, which kind of means that most people, like literally most people in New South Wales, count as being eligible for or needing subsidised housing because the rental market is too, too tough for them. A lot of this has changed over the years. I mean, I've, I've hinted at my age, obviously, a number of times on this podcast and other episodes. But if you go back to the 1990s, according to the, the ABC story, about 8% of uh, people lived in um, socialised housing, you know, the state housing commissions and so on, public housing. That was about 8% back in the, the 1990s. Now it's only 4%. So much of that housing stock uh, in some states has been sold off, and some of that's fine because uh, people who had lived in them for a long period of time were given the option of of buying them at a good rate. So instead of paying rent, they were actually buying this house off the government. Okay, that's probably good. The same happened in Britain. But then that housing stock wasn't replaced uh, and the idea was that if you were receiving a Centrelink payment, uh, you know you wouldn't get a housing commission place. What you'd do is get a place in the private market and Centrelink would give you a bit more, a rental allowance to go towards that because somehow it's better for a private owner be, to be making money out of this transaction than just to give people an affordable home to live in. And it's not going to get any better. We've already got um, a national shortfall of hundreds of thousands of affordable rental homes, conservatively 200,000 homes right now. The Morrison government said in April it would provide an additional $2 billion in low-cost financing aimed at delivering 29,000 more homes. Labor says it will establish a $10 billion Housing Australia Future Fund, which it says will deliver 30,000 new social and affordable homes over the next five years. 30,000 new affordable homes. I mean, it sounds good, right? But let's, let's do the maths here. Now, I want to stress that this number only relates to New South Wales. Uh, there's a piece the other day from... Uh, uh, look, I'll link to it from the 27th of April. In New South Wales alone, more than 50,000 households are on the waiting list for social housing. By 2036, which is 14 years away, New South Wales is expected to see a shortfall of affordable housing of 316,700 units, by which they mean homes. And the Western Sydney region alone uh, will have a shortfall of 28,200 units. Now, here's the maths. New South Wales call it 30% of Australia's population. That means by the year 2036, Australia will be short a million 
affordable homes. And I've seen that figure cited elsewhere uh, from another calculation. I haven't linked to that. I can't remember exactly where that was. By affordable, uh, they mean you're paying no more than 30% of your household income on rent. Now, I know people who are paying more than that and, and yeah, that's a calculation I'll, I'll leave you uh, to do for yourselves. But 2036, 14 years away, a million affordable homes would be needed to bring us up to actually people being able to afford their rent without struggling. So Labor's plan, 30,000 over five years, and, and, the, and the coalition's plan is about the same. $30,000 over five years, $30,000? 30,000 homes over five years is 6,000 a year. So multiply that by 14 years, assuming it goes through four, well, more than four election cycles, five election cycles it has to keep going, and that will deliver 84,000 affordable homes. That's still short more than 900,000 around the country. That is to say, it doesn't even fix 10% of the problem by the year 2036. And that's assuming no population growth and no increase in the broad number of people needing affordable housing because obviously at, at, the, at the back end, people either increase their income and can afford more or they die. In the front end, we've got more coming through, but we have an ageing population. That number's going to go up. So unless we see a plan that delivers a million homes by 2036, or really, you know, well before then would be nice because we've got people in the waiting list. These these plans just kind of nibble at the edges. They're pointless. Oh, we're going to create 30,000 new homes. So fucking what? What about everyone else? Now, I look at this um, in terms of how it affects me. Um, I earn less than the median income um, for health reasons. I don't work totally full time, uh, so my income is is below the average. Not a, and I'm not a huge amount above the poverty line. But then I I have a deal where I don't pay rent, so I'm kind of okay. I can afford one notch up from shit wine, um, and I have. Uh, really quite low cost of living in in many ways but i'm oh yeah, yeah look i'm i kind of getting you know getting to or am a boomerish age depending on how you define it i don't fit with that demographic culturally i'm not into you know some of the music that boomers listen to oh my god anyway um but i'm certainly not in the demographic, the typical, oh, you're a boomer, you've retired, you've got a couple of investment properties, you've got superannuation, you live in it. No, I have none of that. Uh, for various reasons, I have no superannuation, mostly due to health knocking me out of the workforce for periods and, and 
you know, you burn your super superannuation surviving. I have no savings. I certainly don't own any real estate. So th- I come back to the question of, so what do I want to do? At some point, I will reach, well, you know, as they say, an age when you should retire. I mean, all of this worked uh, on the principle that people uh, – worked in heavy jobs and labour and we didn't have the, the, the medical stuff we had now. So, sure, retire at 65 because you'll be dead by 70. No one really cares. Uh, but now people will live longer, which is a good thing. Don't get me wrong. But what do we do with all these people, and I'm one of them, who happen not to have a home that we've owned and paid off and an investment property for income and so on. Now, I'm not worried. Well, I am worried, but I'm not worried about me personally. It's not a personal known uh, moan. Uh, luck is a huge factor in all this. Uh, this is, you know, the the cards I've been dealt. This is where I am. This is, uh, you know, where I go. I I don't have a particular jealousy or envy of of, of people in different situations. Uh, I've always lived a fairly um, uh, a quiet life. A quiet life. I don't know. You know what I mean. I, I, I'm not fussed that I don't have a five-bedroom house in Mossman. But I look at the, what the politicians are saying. So what's what's the solution here? What are you going to do to fix this? It's it's not six thousand people a year. You've got a million households having to deal with this in the next few years. What are you going to do? And I hear Labor talking about, for example, it's about giving you opportunities. Look, opportunities are great, but not everyone is in a position to take advantage of an opportunity. That language is still part of this mindset that's blaming the poor people for being poor. Oh, we gave you opportunities... And you're not there. Well, it's your fault, isn't it? You know, you you are morally weak and whatever. I could go on about this for some time. You would get bored. I would get bored. We'd all be very frustrated. But, But the real question here on housing affordability is what the fuck are you going to do? And is having it being a shit fest for another 14 years really adequate? After 14 years, you're going to solve 10% of the problem? That's fucked. If this is going to be changed, it will need a radical change. And I use that word quite deliberately. Something big will have to be changed. Not just a little nibble at the edge. Pisses me off, people. It really pisses me off. A now regular segment of this podcast is the hingeometer, the device by which we measure how unhinged things are becoming, and I'm only applying it to the Australian uh, election campaign at the moment. Uh, but uh, maybe, maybe I will extend it to um, 
to more general use once the election is over. Now, last week, the hingeometer ended up with a final score of plus 24 units of unhinging. I'm not quite sure what those units are, but there were plus 24 of them. I note that since then, uh, analysts are still going on about the Albanese gaffe. And Catherine Deves is still there, so uh, they stay the same. But a few other things have faded away, so I'm knocking off four points and resetting the hingeometer to plus 20 as we start this week's segment. I will not be publishing my working out. It's my hingeometer. So where are we up to? What's been happening this week? Well, there's the whole curry thing, isn't there? With Scott Morrison tweeting, nice to have a night, or was it Facebook? Who cares? Nice to have a night at home, so curry it is. Sri Lankan tamarind eggplant and okra curry and a classic chicken korma. Strong curry, strong economy, stronger future. And then we saw photographs of what was allegedly a korma but looked quite frankly like raw chicken in curdled yoghurt. And maybe the yoghurt was fine. I mean, yoghurt with uh, some herbs and spices in it doesn't doesn't look very nice uh, before it's cooked. But then it was, it was white and korma is generally not white. And then this turned into a whole thing and I've linked to an article about it and it's stupid whether or not Scott Morrison is bullshitting us about a chicken korma is not well I want to say it's not what this election about is about but it kind of is isn't it but the amount of attention given to this fucking curry plus 5 plus 5 on the hingeometer for that Wait, it should have been a thing for maybe an hour and then we move on, but, you know, it's it's easy, isn't it? I blame the media. So that's a plus five. Uh, the other thing is, is yesterday was uh, the 4th of May, although apparently we have to say it May the 4th so we can say May the 4th be with you and it's a Star Wars thing like a kid's movie from the 1970s, and that's what we base our stuff around. I I think this is even even worse than Talk Like a Fucking Pirate Day. So, Labor, I'm looking at you. There have been two graphics out, and I'll put them on the the webpage, of course, with um, Star Wars themes. One of them shows Anthony Albanese kind of looking like Obi-Wan Kenobi with a droid in front of him saying, may the fourth be with you. Yes, labour, a better future. And and it doesn't connect. There's no connection between labour's policy or Star Wars or robots or anything. It's just trying to show Anthony Albanese as a Jedi Knight. So fuck off with that. And the other one admittedly does try and tie it in with an election theme. They show Scott Morrison hugging the Death Star, the Imperial Death Star, but it's it's the Debt Star. 
the DEBT star, write, that's no moon, it's Morrison's massive debt. Asterisk, and then a footnote, remember, Morrison doubled the debt before COVID. The debt star. Uh, I'm going to give that plus two points because, yeah, it's unhinged and it's lame, but it's not really a lot lamer than the rest of the shit that's coming out of these people. On uh, Tuesday, the Australian uh, tweeted, in a bizarre performance, the Labor leader handballed questions on his party's housing plan to his junior party uh, partner. Watch. Or another way of, of putting that is that questions on Labor's housing plan were referred to Labor's shadow housing minister, who was across the detail, because that's his job. That is the Australian uh, saying it is bizarre that ministers talk about their own portfolio. I'm only giving that a plus one, though, because as far as the Australian's unhingedness goes, it's it's really quite a small one, isn't it? One Nation, Pauline Hanson's One Nation. This is too easy. Um, it turns out, according to the Grawn and others, that uh, emails have revealed that One Nation is running candidates in states where they don't live uh, because they've just been trying to find anyone to put down as the One Nation candidate in each electorate, just hours before the close of nominations. Um, one prospective candidate was told, when you're putting in your form, just where it says electorate, just leave that blank. We'll fill that in later. Um, and several of the candidates, uh, reportedly, are running in uh, seats in states other than where they live. And there's even a husband and wife uh team a husband and wife anyway who are running in separate seats in new south wales and victoria certainly that's the case here i'm up in the blue mountains our federal seat is macquarie and uh the local one nation candidate uh, there's no information about him either well anywhere really uh except his I've, i've looked him up his name is tony pettit uh, and he was previously an Advance Australia candidate, that is the racist anti-immigration party, and a Liberal Democrat candidate, i.e. the lib- like the right-wing libertarian nutjob party. Sue me, you cunts. Um, which is weird because the Liberal Democrats actually think that immigration shouldn't be regulated because, because libertarian... Uh, and you know this is this is the same Tony Perrett that when he was running uh, in local government for the Australia First Party, he told Fairfax Media, as it was then, that a- Asian Australians probably wouldn't make good soldiers. Yeah. Then again, we lost the Vietnam War, didn't we? So you know, take that. On the other hand, all of this is pretty par for the course for One Nation, so I'll give it a plus one. Now, the 
big score here, I think, is for the uh, Murdoch and uh, Liberal Party reaction against all of the so-called teal independents who've been running uh, part of the what is it, the Climate Two Hundred thing? What you know, you know who I mean. They, they, they're independents. They're being coordinated. Uh, they're being funded in part by a fundraising campaign uh, from Simon Holmes, a court, uh, and others. Media Watch uh, on Monday night did point out that the Murdoch outlets have been going hard, I mean hard, against the teal independents. Hosts and guests on Sky After Dark have also been piling on, with Peter Credlin offering a gloomy 13-minute feature on the independent threat, which kicked off with this warning from her old boss, former PM Tony Abbott. They're basically... Labour in disguise, that's what they are. So be under no illusions, this is a false flag operation. Credlin then railed at the injustice of only Liberal MPs being targeted. Why these Climate 200 guerrilla games matter is not just that Liberal seats could fall, but the Liberal campaign hardheads will waste time and money trying to hang on to electorates that by right shouldn't be at risk. Note the words, by right. Oh, I noted those words, Mr. Paul Barry of Media Watch on Monday night on the ABC television channel. They're our seats. How dare they? How dare someone run for for an election in a traditionally conservative seat with policies that appeal to the voters? My God. Peter Credlin, as as we should all remember, was uh, Tony Abbott's chief of staff when he was prime minister. Uh, but you know, she she's on Sky News after dark as so, you know. Oh, we're just commentators. We're not biased. No, no, no. You're all part of the whole thing. Look, that's that's fine. Tim Dunlop, who writes about politics, noted on on Twitter that. When the oligarchs are frightened, you know something important is happening. As I say in this article, which I've linked to, don't miss your chance. It's probably a once-in-a-generation moment to make things better. And this, of course, connects back with what I've been saying for the last couple of weeks about the two-party system and about how that doesn't have to be the way things are. Anyway, I've spoken about that aspect of it already. Uh, on this episode, um, continuing the the Murdoch line on this, the Australian uh, said on the 1st of May, no, uh, take that back, the 3rd of May, uh, Tuesday, the most destructive, harmful and dangerous vote anyone can make in the forthcoming election is for a teal independent or the Greens. They are both a direct threat to our national security. Somehow. What the fuck? I mean, all of that, this this whole rant against uh, the independence, plus three unhinging points from me, I reckon, but I want to give I want to give it a little more attention too to Tim Wilson's piece uh, in the papers. Tim Wilson is, of course, the Liberal member for the seat of Goldstein in Victoria, and he wrote quite a long spray, which was under the headline "Quote Independence Unquote Want to Override Our Democracy." Yes, he's actually going with the idea 
that more candidates running in an election is undemocratic. He begins with the phrase, despite claims that so-called independent candidates want to find your voice at the ballot box, the real agenda is to shut it down. More than a decade ago, left-wing academic Clive Hamilton spoke about the frustration of climate activists who could not get their way at the ballot box. Now, I don't have time to go into why I don't respect Clive Hamilton. Um, I'll leave that as an exercise uh, for the reader. But yeah, Tim Wilson says several times that that... Uh, to legislate a binding emissions reduction target that was not tied to elections would amount to a subversion of our democratic system. Apparently laws are undemocratic. Uh, This is the Teal Independence assault on our democracy. The party of so-called independence wants to override democracy. The man's fucking deranged, or as we might put it, unhinged. So plus two points just for Tim Wilson for that article. Meanwhile, Alan Jones, yes, the great Alan Jones, uh, is going to have another go at uh, running his streaming video show for four nights a week for the rest of the election campaign. I wonder whether he realises that the campaign is half over and people have already begun to vote. Plus one for Alan Jones, just for nostalgia, uh, nostalgia's sake. And finally, um, you may have seen the report that Scott Morrison has said this whole na- idea of a National Integrity Commission is terrible because it would be a kangaroo court and Australia could become an unrecognisable, quote, public autocracy. By which I think he means that people who weren't elected would make decisions that have been delegated to them, you know, like the police, public prosecutors, doctors, um, teachers. Plus one to Scott Morrison, just 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 because the idea of, oh, no, 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 having an integrity commission would, would destroy the government. Oh, would, it, would it now, mate? Would it now? And why would that be? So putting all that together, we're up to plus 36 unhinging points. That's the highest we've been so far during the election campaign. Plus 36, and there's still 16 days to go. One of the disadvantages of, of doing an election-themed podcast every week, which I mean, which is my fault, right? It was my decision. Uh, but, of course, there's a lot going on elsewhere right now. I mean, there always is, right? So many things happening all at once. So to just go uh, from Australia over to the, um, the America for a brief time, uh, here's just one snippet. Uh, this is a conversation uh, recorded by Jason Selvig. He is half the comedy duo The Good Liars, and this is just from a few days ago. You think Biden is not alive right now? No, the guy that's doing the stand-up job of trying to wake people up is an actor wearing a mask. I mean, there's several different people playing Joe Biden at this point. And when when he fell up the stairs going on the airplane, 
I myself think that that was Jim Carrey. I've heard that he was one of them. I the James wait, 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 wait. You think that Jim Carrey was wearing a mask and was the and acting president? Silly and being silly by falling up the stairs three different times. And James Woods also, I think, is one of the doppelganger mask-wearing people. Sure. Absolutely true. I, ha- I have no further questions. Let's have a look at the polls, uh, or a poll. Um, if you follow me on Twitter, which nearly all of you do, um, you will know that I look at the essential poll each fortnight. I, for no particular reason, I've chosen that one, except maybe that news poll is gets lots and lots of attention. Uh, so, you know, I want to be a bit different. Uh, one of the questions uh, this week was, how important are each of the following issues to you when it comes to this year's uh, federal election? And uh, in in order of importance, the most important by a significant margin, that is a statistically significant uh, margin, is cost of living. A total of 69% of people say it's either important or very important. Nice. Uh, followed by improving public services such as health and welfare, followed by job security, followed by climate change. Uh, overall, uh, climate change, 29%, very important, 25% important, 36% neutral and 11% not important, um, adding the two together. So in that kind of neutral zone, that's interesting, about about a third of people are not really seeing climate change as an important issue in this election in, in terms of something uh, that will change their vote. Which I find interesting because uh, to me that says, yeah, that's it. It doesn't matter who we pick; that's not going to make a difference. Which is a bit different from saying it's not an important subject. And there's other things on that. Um, boat turnbacks and asylum seekers are there. There's still forty percent of people think that's important, which is weird. Although fifty forty nine percent of people say it's neutral. Um, but yes, cost of living and improving public services and job security are the three big ones. And uh, they're going to work against Morrison, I think. We'll see how that uh, unfolds over the next 16 days. On Twitter, uh, Brent Hodgson uh, tweeted the other day, an excellent thread. I suggest you read it. He notes, it's just dawning on the media the significance of what is happening in Kuyong, uh, which is uh, Josh Frydenberg's seat, but more broadly the, the teal independence thing. The grassroots movement that is reinventing campaigning, the demise of a prince who will never be prime minister, and a crossroads that hasn't been seen since Menzies birthed the Liberal Party uh, back in 1947. Now, do read the whole thing. He's got photos of how uh, the Teal Independent, who I really should know her name, but I don't, um, and I can't be asked looking it up at this late stage of the podcast, um, it, it, pictures of how they're organising themselves, how they're getting out there, how they're campaigning. It, it really is quite the operation when traditionally the Liberal Party would 
just have assumed, oh, it's a safe liberal seat. Josh Frydenberg will be back in. Um, so, so we'll focus our attention elsewhere. Yeah, it is. It is interesting that the media kind of as a a school of remora, you know, feeding off the feces of the shark politicians. Only now kind of notice, oh, wait, there's this thing happening over here. We can create a narrative of it. But, yeah, this, this is significant. The number of independents running, you know, they're part of a, you know, a coherent group, but they're still their own people. Um, they're going to make a difference. Election night will be very, very interesting. Do read Brent Hodgson's tweet uh if you're going over to the website it is link number 26 on the list uh but i'm a bit worried about his his choice of words a crossroads that hasn't been seen since menzies birthed the liberal party i assume sir robert menzies you know spread his legs and the liberal party emerged fully formed from his bloke foof just Wah, out comes the Liberal Party. But then also a crossroads. Did it have traffic lights? Was it a roundabout? Well, no, that's that's a roundabout isn't crossroads. But out of Robert Minzy's privates, it came in 1947. It was an amazing year, ladies and gentlemen, an amazing year. Sports bet odds. Don't gamble with money you can't afford to lose. Make it sure it's fun. Bet responsibly or at least amusingly, etc., etc., etc. After all those weeks, the betting odds are back where they were <laughs> like two months ago. Um, like literally, it's a dollar thirty-four for a Labor win. Uh, dollar no, three dollars twenty for a Coalition win, and one hundred and one dollars for any other kind of. Prime Minister coming out. That is that is where it was months ago. That does seem to have settled down, although, you know, two weeks is a long time in politics when we see how that happens. Finally, I want to quote from Nikki Sava in the Nine Facts papers the other day. She's a brilliant political commentator. She seems to have summed it up quite well. Morrison's election pitch is short on the substance, contradictory and confusing. Unless Scott Morrison comes up with a compelling new policy or gambit in the next few days, he could go down in history as the Liberal leader who won an election he should have lost and then lost the one he should have won in a canter. Uh, No, I won't read any more of that. You can look for itself. Uh, Although she does say... Each formulation, every every excuse he's making is delivered with such conviction, uh, which remains his great strength, that it's easy to forget what happened yesterday or the day before. Although, if you believe the polls, it is catching up with him. And I, I, I will say, Scott Morrison does have the ability to just stand there in front of the press and say that something never happened when, no, it's on the tape. We heard you. And the final quote goes to Shadow Treasurer Jim Chalmers, who the other day said, if only you could pay your mortgage with Scott Morrison's excuses. Or for that matter, the rent. Well, that's the edict for now. 
All the links are at the 9pmmeeting.com. Please go to that slash tip uh, to throw some dollars into the tip jar. It's my birthday coming up. Did I tell you about my birthday? Uh, the next episode will be next Thursday, the 12th of May, and there'll be more after that through the month. Until then, I'm still Gerian. Wash your hands and vote early, vote often. The 9pm Edict is a Skank Media production. Sorry.